I'm Debbie. I'm Crystal. And this is DC Podcast. Hooray! Hey! Crystal, this is a very exciting week for us. Is it? Yes. Why? Because as our listeners may or may not know, we have the goal of interviewing an activist from every state in the union, and this week we get to check off Oregon. Yay! Who are we talking to today, Debbie? We are talking to Riley Brand, and he is working with KED, and specifically his project at KED. KED stands for Knock Every Door. Thank you. He is working with the National Nurses United on their national campaign for Medicare for All, and he has such good information, and he's just another person that's so easy to talk to. Yeah, it was actually um, neat. He is an organizer. Uh, he started off with uh, working with the Bernie campaign, ended up working with the Hillary campaign, and he's just branched off into more local politics and local campaigns to stay close to family, which I personally love. So without any further ado, um, we would love to introduce to you right. Yeah, yeah, of course. So can I ask, um, so you guys started this podcast kind of out of an idea of like wanting to talk to activists and organizers to like learn more about what other people can do to get involved and... um... Well, at first, um, so full disclosure, I started listening to Keeping It 1600, which was done by John Lovett and John Favreau and all those from the Obama campaign, not the actors, but they were speechwriters for the Obama administration. And then when Trump won, they started... Crooked Media, which is Pod Save America, that whole franchise. Oh, I've been and, listening to Keeping um, It 1600 since way uh, back in the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was, it kind of, yeah. I was not into podcasts until then. I was like, this is kind of cool. And when Trump won and I couldn't figure out how to focus my energy, um, I, I personally wanted to do a podcast that wasn't a news podcast, but would comment on it. For the layperson, because I found that a lot of my friends, a lot of my family didn't quite understand a lot that was going on within the administration, kind of like what they did at Crooked Media, you yeah. know, just kind of make it a little bit more accessible. But I was hoping to do a little bit more centrist so that both sides could listen to it. Um, and then as Debbie and I were talking, we became more interested with the the movement that was happening of all the people that were getting more interested in activism. And we realized, you know, that's kind of where we were wanting to go, but we didn't know how. And it just kind of formed into, well, let's have a conversation with them and share it. And then people would have one, the support that they needed to be able to do things, options varying from very easy. You could just click on your computer all the way to actually getting out and starting your own organization. Yeah. And then also just kind of letting people know that anybody can do it. Yeah, because I had started a um, political group in L.A. after the election. I always say that I was literally the angriest person in America when Trump got elected for a variety of reasons. And so I had started this political group, and suddenly I found myself in this position of everyone coming to me looking for answers of how we do this. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I work in Hollywood. I make movies. I literally have never had political aspirations in my life, and suddenly I found myself in the middle of this group, and I was supposed to be the leader, so I just started cramming with, like, reading books and going to move on and Indivisible and all those resources, and I had friends in other states that had started their own political group, and I think because they're also production people and used to organizing from a production standpoint... 
that they found themselves in the same position. So when Crystal and I started having a conversation about the podcast, I said, you know, the one conversation that keeps coming up over and over again is all these people want to be engaged, they want to be politically active, but nobody knows how to do it. Like Crystal said, we're still trying to figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, we all are, right? I mean, like, I think that's one of the things I learned when I was like 19 and I, and I keep reminding myself of it. I, I um, worked at a law firm because um, I was like, oh, I want to go to law school. And I worked at a law firm and they did international politics. And I remember sitting in my, um, in my the lawyer's office and he was just telling me, he was like, yeah, like, I think it's this. I'm not sure it's this. Can you write this out? Do some research on it. And then like finalize this project. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I can do that. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like 19 though. Like, I don't think I should, I have no idea what you're talking about. I probably shouldn't be doing this. And he's like, it's no, it's totally fine. Like we mess up all the time. Um, I'll just fix it. And then I, and from there, I remember just finding all these other moments in my life where I was like, no one knows what they're doing. Everyone's just trying to figure out even politicians and like the most, you know, serious individuals, they're still trying to figure it out. They're trying to find whatever the best relationships they can develop to, to move their idea forward. Um, or, you know, everyone's just working to figure it out. And you know what? That's really a common refrain from all the activists that we've interviewed so far, is that they all started at a point because they were interested in something or maybe angered, so they were motivated because of that, but they literally reached a point where they realized, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I need to figure it out, and from them figuring it out, that's how their organizations grew. So I think, you know... The one thing we love to keep repeating to our listeners is nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so true. If I was to build on that, the only thing I would ever say is like whatever we do, whatever we decide to do, let's like make it be something that is forwarding the conversation, like getting people to take action. And as long as it's centered around that, then like we'll we'll be moving in the right direction. So can you explain what Knock Every Door organizes around? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, out of its conception, Knock Every Door um, organized around just that. Um, They wanted to organize people to knock every single door um, across the United States. Um, And really what that means is, like, if you're going to take on a project that large, it's like, well, how do you organize that? How do you get folks to do that? What are they going to organize about? Um, And to organize a campaign that big would be, you know, probably pretty difficult um, to do. So what you do instead is you kind of just say, all right, well, let's just train everyone who wants to learn how to volunteer canvas and go around and knock on doors. Let's just train all of them. Like if we were going to give someone a campaign in a box for what it could look like for you to go out and knock doors for X issue or Y candidate, um, here's how you could do that. And here we'll show you how to create a volunteer program and, you know, do, do it so that we can get people out moving and talking about the issues that are going on. Um, so that was the kind of the conception of Knock Every Door. And then over time, what started to happen was um, the, the California Nurses Association and the National Nurses, they really liked our model of organizing, um, which we call distributed organizing because it's done at mass scale. And they really liked that model. And so they, they, you know, we've just been working with them on their Medicare for All campaign. And how did you get involved? You just knew the people or... Yeah, so we've been working together. Um, we just like have no know about each other. So in the in the, in our community of folks, like a lot of us activists and organizers, like we keep up with each other on Facebook and Instagram, and like you know, do we post each other uh, job openings that are happening? Um, how I particularly started working on the Knock Every Door project was uh, I had just wrapped up 
working um, during the open enrollment period of the Affordable Care Act. Um, during that period is the period right where people can um, sign up for insurance, um, being that it's open enrollment. And it's also the time where if you you know had access to benefits at, from like a union or something like that, and um, in this case, this is an organization I worked for was a union. If they working for this union, you got access to help have them help pay for your health care. And I had just got wrapped up doing that. And after that period, I was organizing just doing volunteer work um, for the Democratic Socialists of America. And I was, I've been running and I'm still running their uh, Medicare for All uh, campaign and locally here in Portland. And, you know, just friends saw that I was doing organizing work and they were like, hey, uh, we're also working on this project um, for the National Nurses United on Medicare for All. And we see you're doing this, you know, locally here in Portland. Do you want to like jump ship and come help us work on this national project? And I was like, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, just kind of like people who know each other and we share values and uh, we know of each other from our previous organizing experience. Um, we just kind of banded together and started to, started to do some work. When you say organizing, can you explain what you mean by that for people who might not know? Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, I hope I'm not like jumping around here, but when I was looking at your guys' questions that you uh, sent me, is like, what is a citizen? What is an activist? And, and what is community or your definition of these things? Um, in that, like, I would say that um, when I say organizer, I probably mean what you, what most people think of when they think of activist. Um, but an organizer is essentially just, you know, an individual who uh, participates um, in the political process, uh, maybe indirectly. Um, so they organize their community around a ballot measure or around, you know, like a bill, a proposed bill or perhaps a candidate, um, and organizers are just folks that organize people to do something inside of the community, um, whether it's, you know, build a sidewalk or, uh, you know, get crosswalks put in or help elect a candidate or get Medicare for All as an issue passed, right? Um, they're all people who do that kind of work are um, titled organizers, at least, yeah. Um, but we all, you know, as previous Bernie organizers, like we all share similar values. So like all of these projects are just, you know, progressive projects that we've decided to work on. The nurses project though, I would say is like one of our biggest projects that we worked on. I mean, there's a lot of other ones. And so if people are listening to this who have worked for or work or have worked for Knock Every Door, I mean, like I only know about a very small portion of this. Um, we do a lot of other really cool work and uh, some of it, I mean, I'm not sure like how much of in detail I can really go into because I've only worked in for the nurses project. So I'm really only going to talk about that. Um, but I mean, knock every door as like what its model is, right? It, the, the ideal, the idea behind it is that we want to get people out and, um, having conversations with each other at the door. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, if you look at, uh, there's tons and tons of studies, um, in political science that show that, you know, you can flyer, you can do, um, you know, billboards, you can create ads, you can drop, you know, mailers, you can do all of this type of stuff. But the only type of voter contact that makes, you know, the most significant amount of differences is uh, voter contact face to face, peer to peer. Um, and you're much more likely to sway a voter or to convince them to go out and actually vote if you have a face to face conversation. Um, if you get a mailer, you know, you might look at it and be like, oh, this is dumb, but I'm not, you know, you're not, that, that might not convince you to vote for a candidate. Um, you might have, you have to find that kind of internal motivation, but if you have someone at your door, um, you're much more likely to be swayed by them. So if you, so the idea behind knock every door was, well, let's just create this project where we can, can we can train as 
many hosts and as many individuals to go out and um, knock on doors as possible so we can generate the, generate these conversations. This has been especially helpful for Medicare for All um, because Medicare for All, as you guys maybe have seen, there's like a lot of studies that come out uh, saying that it has high support, right? 70% of Americans support Medicare for All. That's 85% of Democrats um, and some odd number of Republicans. I, I don't remember where it sits, like around 45 or something. Um, but because of that, right, so it makes, it's not a blue or red issue. I mean, this is kind of a purple issue that affects all Americans and something that we should all care about. Um, so with knocking on every door rather than some other models of organizing, we're able to reach much more people, right? If you ever organize with the Democrats, you've probably heard of the system called VAN. Um, and if you go out and knock doors for VAN, like you're only going to knock on registered doors, registered voter doors, right? You're only going to have conversations with a select like slice of the population. But within this sort of like new leftist politics or like, you know, this Bernie wing of, of politics, we're really looking to expand the potential of individuals um, that, that can go out and vote or that should be participating in the political process. And we do that by like knocking on every single door and trying to have as many conversations as we possibly can, like open up that opportunity. Otherwise, you know, you're, then you're just talking to the same old Democrats every single year um, except, instead of expanding, um, expanding the left. Can you explain what Van is for people that don't know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like very briefly, Van is just like the the system that holds voter file voter file data or like yeah data on voters and their voter history, whether or not they voted, uh, if they're registered Democrats. It's just like an it's a it's a tool that organizers and some activists use to to do voter contact and reach out to to people. But it only lets you reach out to registered voters and people that say that they're interested in voting, right, or who have voted in the past. Those may not always be the people that we want to reach out to. We might want to reach out to first-time voters or, you know, new new voters who it's their first time that they're even eligible to vote. Um, those are the people that we're looking to bring in a lot of the time to the political uh, arena. All right, so could you explain to us what the National Nurses United campaigns when Medicare for All is about what is their ultimate goal and how do you plan to get there? Yeah, absolutely. So our ultimate goal is obviously to win Medicare for all. Like that is what we're shooting to do. Like end all be all. And we, we're going to get there. I promise you that we will, we will have Medicare for all in the United States. Um, and all of the polls are showing that that's the trajectory and the direction that we're headed. Um, the, and the way in which we plan to get there is by winning over public support um, and by knocking every door. Um, and because we know this isn't like a blue or a red issue, uh, this is a purple issue, this is something that affects all Americans. So the, the way, the model that we have is to knock on every door to garner as many supporters as we possibly can. Um, and get them to take action. And taking action can mean many different things. It can mean volunteering on the campaign and going out and knocking doors. It can mean text banking, phone banking. It can mean volunteering as a host, which is the most kind of like top level ask that we ask for our volunteers. Um, but by, by generating those supporters, uh, we generate support for the issue. Um, and then beyond that, we ask our supporters to make a phone call. Right. So we're constantly driving phone calls into offices um, of our congressional representatives. And those uh, those phone calls matter. We hear back from our political staffers. They say things like that. They talked to a office or a congressional uh, a house representative and they heard that, you know, they had 30 calls about Medicare for all. And when they get 30 calls or 100 calls or 10 calls about these issues, um, representatives, they, they, they notice and they take, they take notice to that because that means that there are people, there are constituents in their area 
that are organizing around this issue and they want to know about it. Um, and that, that sways public opinion, right? Oh, since, um, 2016, um, Bernie's Medicare for all proposal was a fringe idea at the time. And now you see it at 70%, um, support for, from Americans across the board. Um, and that's because of the work that we do. That's because we go out and have these conversations. We dissect with people what their real issues are about the, about Medicare for all or about the healthcare system. And we then provide a better solution for them and show them that there's another system out there. Um, yeah. And so that, that's the way ultimately that we kind of, um, run this campaign. We do it by pressuring, pressuring, uh, representatives and garnering support among, uh, the people. What is your biggest hurdle right now to reaching that goal? I mean, sorry, fake news. Yeah, I would say that's probably like like disinformation from the right, um, right? Like, uh, so I would say the number one thing, yeah, is probably disinformation um, because when like Trump comes out and just like blatantly lies about the issue, like we have to work to kind of correct that. Um, so that that kind of sucks. Um, but I would I would say what like even more so what's like stopping people or like stopping us from getting there is the pharmaceutical companies and the, the insurance companies. Like those are the entities out there that really don't want us to have this, right? Because they're ultimately the ones that profit off this system. And they're ultimately the ones that are, that are making a buck. And so they're the ones that are throwing hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars at our representatives to get them to vote against this kind of thing, even though it has a support level of 70% in America. Like that should be staggering. That's more votes than Hillary Clinton had. Um, in the national election, right? More people support this um, so than ever. And the only reason we don't have it, I would say, is because of the systems that are put in place and like the fact that, that the insurance companies can throw money at our legislators makes this much more difficult, um, which is why we you know, have the tactic, I would say, um, and I'm kind of speaking more for myself. These are my own views, like not necessarily the nurse's views, but um, that's why we run a pressure campaign is because ultimately, like if the legislators are out there getting, you know, a $10,000 donation to their lobby or to their, to their pack for their reelection, what's more important to a legislator, 10,000 votes or $10,000? I'll bet you it's 10,000 votes. Um, and so if we can generate the pressure with our constituents and going with their constituents and going out and getting them to sign on to a statement of support and then make a phone call to their office, that is much more valuable than what the insurance companies have. Because ultimately, like, yes, money is running politics. Um, and I will agree with that it's kind of like philosophy or understanding of the political system. But ultimately, like it is votes that matter. So ultimately, it's votes that we have to go around to organize. And that's what's going to, you know, that's what's going to make a politician change their minds is votes. Um, so if we can, if we can change more people's minds and let politicians know that, that people support the issue, the politician will be forced to support the issue or get voted out, you know. Um, and so that's what that's, that's why people say Medicare for all is a litmus test. Because um, if you don't support it, we'll vote you out. Fair enough. <laughs> How did you become an organizer? What's your history? Yeah, so I could I could go back a little ways. Um, I uh, I was in college uh, in 2015, um, and I was a senior, and um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to law school at the time, 
um, was like a 4.0, you know, college grad uh, or getting ready to be a college grad. And Bernie announced that he was going to be running for uh, presidency. At the time, I was a history and like labor major. So I was very interested in labor politics and like how the working classes, you know, gotten to the place where we are today. I was really like questioning like how how we arrived here as a society and live in a you know place where um, you know, the injustices that happen uh, to workers every day happen. Like, how did we get here? So I, I, once I saw Bernie, I was like very much in line with his political view. And I was like, you know, how, what do I got to do to help get this guy to win? Um, and so my story is not unlike um, many other people's. Um, I just started doing things when he got, when he started announcing. There, the, when he, after he announced that he was running, I had started organizing phone banks because that's what someone said you should do if you want to reach out to voters. I started registering voters because it made sense to register as many people as you possibly can to open up that spectrum. Um, and before I knew it, I was um, writing letters and getting you know uh, things posted in the op-eds um, in the Santa Barbara like Independent. I was um, the co-organizer of our local UCSB for Bernie group in Santa Barbara, um, and we helped organize with some other um, organizations that were in the area. Um, we registered more um, college students to vote that year um, than in any other college campus in the nation, um, and that was something that I just like did kind of with this group of people, um, not really thinking about it. It was just like I want to do this, and I want to to make sure that you know I, we can get my the candidate that I want to see elected elected. Um, and so then I was like, well, what, 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 I just kept asking myself, like, well, what more can I do? What more can I do? Um, and eventually, uh, I became a delegate. Um, I ran to become uh, a delegate. So if you guys remember the delegates was the, you know, from the democratic national convention, they helped either elect Hillary or, uh, Bernie. So I became a delegate for Senator Sanders because I really wanted to be there and like be as, be as involved in as, uh, participating as I could. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like one thing led to another after the convention, obviously, like I some jobs popped up to go work for um, another candidate in um, Ohio during the national election for to work for Hillary. Um, and I took that and was just like, you know, um, I want I, at that point, I just like wanted to see change. Um, and I'm kind of just like rehashing all of my like history and politics. But um, to answer your, to long windedly answer your question, like, yes, that was what got me involved was the, the Bernie campaign. And then um, I just started doing different campaigns after that. I just kept kept getting involved. After the election, I moved back home and like wanted to get involved with local politics. So I was kind of done with the national sphere. Um, I always spent some time working for as a campaign manager for a local county commissioner. Um, then I did the union stuff and then the Medicare for all. And um, now, yeah, now working for the nurses on their Medicare for all campaign. You know, what's interesting as you're talking is that most of the guests we've had on before you, I, wouldn't you agree, Crystal? You kind of would classify them as accidental activists. Yeah. And you seem to have, from the start, decided this is what you want to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, so a lot of people... Um, I mean, I would say that I, I, like, I fell into it also, but then, like, after I realized like the difference that I was making and like the, I was the fact that it was measurable um, for me was what made the most amount of difference. Um, and so once I started realizing that then is when I was like, Oh, I can do this. And like, not only can I do this, but like I see the value in it and I can see the measured value of like, Oh, I registered 4,500 people to vote this year. And those people then turned out to the polls and voted for my candidate. And we had 90% um, of the people who voted Democrat in my district vote for Bernie. And like, I saw that and saw that was directly from the work that me and this other, you know, group of volunteers had done. And I was like, wow, like, okay, I, that's what makes me want to like do this work. And like, so then I, then I like only intentionally sought out that work. 
Um, I, I like refuse to go work at law firms or to go work for other, you know, I just, I only decided that I wanted to do that work at some point. Yeah. Cause a lot of our people became activists because they came fed up with something. Whereas what you're saying is you became kind of an activist because you saw that you could have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would probably agree with that analysis. Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak for other folks. I think, I, I think, I think that that definitely comes, you know, from the, the Trump era, like people, definitely a lot of people got pissed off after 2016. Right. And so after Donald Trump won the presidency, that really ignited people because people weren't paying attention before. Um, what got me paying attention was, you know, like the, the positive side of it, which was less Bernie character, right? What that, that's what kind of drove me to it. But a lot of other people, I suppose, definitely probably got pulled in because they were angry and frustrated and pissed off. Um, which is an interesting thing when you're coming into organizing, because like it, a lot of people are very frustrated and it's like my job, what I see my job anyway, is like to take their frustration and their anger and then channel it in, into productive sources, right? Like when you say, I hate Trump and I'm pissed off about the fact that he was able to get Brett Kavanaugh, um, you know, appointed or whatever. And I don't think that's a place where we should be in society. And so then you want to go to a march. I'm that guy at the march that's like, this is great. I love this energy here. Sign up to come like talk to voters hey, sign up to like, why don't you call your representative and let them know that you're pissed off about it. Um, one of the things, and this is actually an antidote. I'm just, sorry, I'm just kind of rambling now. No, but go for no, it. we go love it. it. Keep going. One of the, one of the things that um, I think separates, uh, well, not sorry, I don't want to say separates. One of the things that I found interesting about um, like the Women's March, and this actually was an antidote from my, from my boss, and I love, love, love the Women's March. I love all forms of activism, love all forms of protest. I go to protests all the time. I definitely love that. Um, but as an organizer, it's like you want to, you want to have the most productive kind of output for your energy. Um, and so we try and measure like what is that productive output? And we try and do that with like conversations had and like minds changed, right? Um, and one of the things that the, with the women's march is that there was something like, I think 4.1 million people, um, around the country who marched that day. Um, and you can assume that each of those 4 million people, like on average in that day, probably sent, spent somewhere around like four or, you know, five hours of their day, like driving to the march, going to the march, and then, you know, participating in it. Um, and my boss was like, well, what if we could, what if we could have taken those 4.1 million people and their 20 roughly hours, 20 million hours roughly of volunteer work that they put in? And what if we channeled that into like knocking doors for, um, for a candidate or channel that into like actually putting a petition around to have your representatives call or to call your representatives to have them work to impeach Trump? Like what if we put that energy towards something that was like measurable? Um, and I think that's when, when, you, when you talk kind of like, and I'm sorry to back jump back, jump back again to your questions, but I would say that's the, that's the definition of like an activist versus an organizer. Like an activist is like someone who's willing and ready to go out and do the thing. And like, that is excellent and awesome. An organizer is someone who's willing to like trying to take that energy and push it towards productive outcomes in, uh, in government and politics. Uh, what do you find to be more productive as far as from a volunteer, if their energy comes from hating something or an energy that's coming from full support of something with the 2016 election you had that anger that came from the trump 
And before then, as you said, you joined the Bernie campaign because you fully supported him and was excited about him. So could you see a difference in the volunteers based on their base level motivation? Oh, uh, I'd say no. I wouldn't say their motivation was different. Like one, not one type of motivation was better or worse or like more or less. I think um, one thing, well, actually, I shouldn't say more or less. I would say there's definitely a huge, huge increase in the amount of people that wanted to volunteer um, for like different campaigns after the Trump presidency. Um, so that was cool to see. Um, but I don't think that like, like being angry versus like being uh, for something like I don't think that there's really a difference in the outcome. It's really more about like how you, how you harness that energy um, and like, you know, do something with it. I'm not, I'm less interested in what, why you're, you want to do the thing, but like, how can we make sure that you're going to do the thing most effectively? Actually, I shouldn't say I'm less interested. I'm, I'm very interested in why you're motivated to do the thing, <laughs> but I'm, um, I'm more interested in knowing like, okay, what, how can we use that energy? Right. Because like, not everybody wants to do the same thing. Not everybody wants to be at the level of like, um, of an organizer that I am. Not everyone is wanted to be interested. Not everybody wants to host their own event. Um, not everybody wants to door knock, right? Like some people just want to text or make phone calls. Um, so it's really about trying to figure out like plugging the people into their right level of engagement um, is kind of like more so what I think that the, the task at hand is for, for an organizer. But going back to what you said about a lot of people being energized to do something because of Trump and being angry, do you think anger is a sustainable emotion over the long term? And therefore, will those people maybe burn out? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, <clears throat> I what I would hope is that folks who are like motivated via anger, um, I think that like ultimately, if you're, if what you're getting at is like you're talking about the person who's just mad like one day and they go down to a march and they never do anything again, like that's like I would say a uh, like an unproductive form of like engagement with politics. Um, I think that if I, I think that the people who are, you know, motivated by anger, like, that's great. Be motivated by the anger, but then, like, you can still sustain the anger, right? Like, you could still sustain the level of organizing as long as it's something that, like, is ultimately productive, right? And, like, going and yelling on a street corner, um, like, we call those in, 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 in a lot of the organizing work we do is, like, uh, like a honking wave, right? You've probably <laughs> seen those before. That doesn't <laughs> – it doesn't do anything, <laughs> I'm going to be using it's, that term all the time now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, they don't, it doesn't do anything, right? Like, it's great. Like, it looks cool. Maybe you can, you, but you can't measure it as like an activist. You can't say, I did a honking wave for two hours and we got 10 votes out of it. Like, you can't, there's nothing you can do with that, right? <laughs> so it's a matter of like going and saying, well, like, all right, you're angry about Brett Kavanaugh. So what are you going to do about it? Well, let's get a hundred phone calls generated into my senator's office so that we can make sure that he votes against it. Um, or she votes against it, right? Like that, and like that's measurable and that's real. And in in coming to those kind of conclusions as an activist, like what you're going to ultimately end up doing is building community. You're ultimately going to find a hundred other people that are like passionate about the issue and like, care about these things as you do. And you're going to develop those relationships, and you're going to get them to make those phone calls. And then you know now you have a hundred people that are like like-minded and maybe you're going to form some sort of organization but ultimately what you're going to do is build community around something um and that's what an organizer is doing is building communities um yeah because i think it's fair to say that at least for me i won't talk for crystal but at least for me we started doing this podcast because i got super pissed off 
after Trump got elected. So that was my motivation, and I feel like I'm really productive when I'm angry. Because <laughs> we started this podcast, I also, with another friend, started a um, politically-themed coloring book um, nice. called Alternative Facts. Nice. And the money from those book sales go to support Equal Justice Under Law, which is a civil rights nonprofit in Washington, D.C. Nice. So I do kind of find it interesting why people get motivated, because I would say that I would be, you know, educating myself about the different issues at the poll, but I would never in a million years say that... I had any sort of political aspirations. And then uh, I'm from New York, so I always say I'm embarrassed twice over by Trump. I was so infuriated that he got elected that I just thought, this is unlike anything that's happened in this country. It shouldn't be happening. And I don't feel like I can stand by and do nothing. So I would like to think that anger is sustainable in the long run, but it just isn't. So I think you have to find like a productive outlet, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I would full heartedly agree with that. Like, I think that, um, I mean, in fact, me and my coworkers talk about this a lot because we're always talking, like trying to organize people. We're always talking, like talking about like what is people's motivations and like how can we keep them more engaged um, and like why would they possibly be unplugged? And yeah, I think that like, the the sustainable part is definitely what we try and focus on, especially with like an issue like Medicare for all, because this is not something that, you know, sits, uh, only comes up like every two years, like Medicare for all is something we can, we have to fight for in the long term. Like we have to build a grassroots foundation of support across the country, um, and then move that foundation of support into, um, into action. And that, that can only be done over the sustainable, over the sustained long term. Um, because otherwise, you know, like people will lose interest, um, or sorry, people will lose interest if it's not like flashy in our campaign. Like it may be flashy every now and then, but it's like really about building like relationships with folks, um, the long term and teaching them these skills so that they can go out and do it with, with each other and with others. How do you find people or do they find you as far as you being the organizer, getting these people that want to volunteer, be activists, are they seeking you or are you seeking them? Both. Uh, both. Yeah, definitely both. Um, I would say that we do a fair amount of outreach. Um, one of it's to like get people, you know, via like social media or how, how like websites and however email blasts. Um, but I would say like the one thing that's unique about, um, our model with knock every door, um, is that one, one of the things we do out of knocking on every door is right. Like I said before, we're going to get people who aren't necessarily registered voters or people who uh, might not have been engaged at all uh, in the politics and bringing them into the fold. And out of that, uh, when, once we bring in someone new to the fold, right, um, we're then turning them around and inviting them to our events, right? So the, the cycle would look like this. We find someone who wants to host an event. We train them on how to host an event. We recruit for them. They get 10 people to come to their event they go out and knock doors. They knock on uh, 250 doors, find 50 supporters that day of Medicare for All. We then take those 50 supporters and move them into our um, batch of folks. And then the next time that there's an event in that area, we invite those folks out to our um, out to the event. So we said, hey, some, we say something along the lines, hey, someone re- knock, an activist just recently knocked on your door, talked to you about this, and now there's an event that's happening next week, you know, in your neighborhood. Can you come out and join us? Or um, something. We we do a lot locally here in Portland is after we go out and canvas an area, we'll say, hey, we just canvassed you. Thank you for being a supporter of Medicare for All. Would you like to come to this town hall event um, a week later? Um, 
so you can learn more about the issue, right? And that's a way for us to like bring more people into the fold. And really, ultimately what it does is it, it makes it even if it makes it more sustainable because even if folks like burn out um, or get tired or need need to take a month or two off because, of, you know, life happens, we're continually growing that movement, um, which makes it makes it more sustainable. Can we go back to the beginning a little bit? Because um, we kind of just jumped right into it, which is great. Sure, yeah. But... What I would love to know is, do you come from a family of activists? Why were you so activist-minded to begin with? Um, yeah, so more about my life. I was not um, an activist. <laughs> um, I was not born into activism. Um, I was not born into a pr any particular amount of wealth. Uh, I was born in Portland, Oregon. Um, actually, I was born in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, a little town called Milwaukee. Um, my parents didn't have a lot. Uh, I, yeah, I, I would say that my, you know, my dad was a blue collar worker and my mom like worked for Jenny Craig part time, you know? Um, and my dad's a Republican and is actually still a Republican to this day. And, you know, told me, uh, that he voted for Trump. So like, that's something real that I live with, uh, as like a far leftist, but yeah, no, I mean, this is, this was all of, I would say probably of my own doing. But why do you think you were so oriented towards doing this type of work? Oh, I mean, ever since I was like a little kid, like I wanted to help people, right? Like, I mean, that's the most cliche thing, but it was so true. Like everybody from a little kid, they kind of chose their profession out of branching out of that. Um, or at least a lot of people did. And um, I branched out first. I wanted to be a, um, a police officer. And then I realized you get shot at. Um, <laughs> I then realized I thought I wanted to be a firefighter for a while. Um, and I became an EMT actually for a little bit and realized that, um, that like as much as I could help people, I wasn't really prepared to have someone's life be that much in my hands. Um, so then I was like, well, I'll go back to school for something else. And I kind of bounced around in school for a little bit, um, and became a, uh, peace studies major, which is like political science, but very much focused on like international studies and kind of a more holistic approach of to poli sci. Um, and then out of that, like, I just, you know, thought like, okay, how can I continue to help people and use like my brain? Um, cause I, at one point I just decided that like, I didn't want to help people physically. I wanted to help people like mentally because ultimately my, and this is like really in depth of who I am as a person. So I apologize, but I, as a person decided like my, ultimately, like when I'm like 70 years old, I'll only be able to help people with my mind and I'll be less capable with my body. So how can I help the most amount of people for the most amount of time? And ultimately I decided I could do that through politics because politics and law and government shape um, everyone's lives. The only reason we had, slavery is because it was legal right i mean people were shitty of course but like it was a legal institution that existed and if we want to take the society that we have today that we hate um that you know we want to, or at least the parts of society that we hate and we want to change that well how are we going to do that right the only way that i feasibly see to do that is through um, politics and law and government oh i love that yeah i love that you thought about this from the long term perspective yeah. Yeah, I mean, like my my I w I'm a um w within political philosophy and philosophy as a whole. Like I'm a contextualist. I very much like ev the world is always changing, so we need to change and adapt with it. And like our life experiences happen to us, and we need to you know change and adapt with our life or with our own life experiences. Um, if we were if we're talking more about like me as an activist, uh, I recently um, became a father. Oh, congratulations! congratulations. Thank you. Um, I have a 12-week-old. Um, he is um, out getting pizza with mom right now. 
he he's not going to eat yeah. a pizza first. He's still totally. <laughs> I don't think but... he has cheap right now. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but yeah. So being a father, uh, that sort of like sh- that shaped the way or shaped the way that I see myself right now as an organizer. I've thought a lot. I've played a lot in national politics. I've played a lot um, at like the federal level um, and even the state level. But now, you know, as a father, it's totally shifted my perspective. And I'm like looking at all my neighborhood leaderhood programs, right? And I'm like looking at like where can I get involved at local politics? Um, thinking about possibly running against my local representative um, in 2020, and like really like embedding myself into the community that I live in. Um, because it's much more here and like immediate now. Right. Um, so over time, like, I think we all should be like changing and questioning our own, our own values and the ways that we, which we see ourselves and like adapting to be, you know, the best new version of ourselves. When you're a politician in Oregon, will you come back on our show? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, sure. Why not? Absolutely. I'm a, I, I decided a long time ago that if I ever become a politician, like I, the my like thing is going to be like I'm a I'm a person and like I'm a human and like I all I want to do is like the same things I've ever done. Um, I didn't get involved in politics because like I got involved because of the Bernie campaign, but like if the world was perfect, right? Like I wouldn't have done it. If we had Medicare for all, if we lived in the world which I believe we ought to be living in, I wouldn't be involved in politics because there'd be no urge for me to, right? Um, if we had like the optimal system, I would be growing coffee on the farm on a, on a beach somewhere and like totally tuned out, but that's just not the world we live in. And so I'm compelled to act. Uh, but yeah. Can I ask what your father thinks of your politics and your activism? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can. Um, he, uh, I think he kind of like, doesn't really think it's a lot. I don't know. He doesn't really like pay much mind to it. Um, yeah, I'll tell you this. So my dad, because you bring this up, because he, you, I mentioned before that he voted um, for Trump. Um, he he called me the day of the election, the day after the election, after it was announced that he had won, like at three o'clock in the morning or whatever, and was like, "Hey, oh my god, like I can't believe you won." And I said, "What do you mean you can't believe you won?" And he, I said, "You voted for him." And he said, yeah, but I didn't think he'd win. Um, And luckily, my dad lives in Oregon and like the Electoral College. So his vote didn't really matter for a whole much um, because Oregon's a very blue state. But uh, but yeah, like, I mean, that's just the way he views politics. Like he's just kind of like absent minded about it um, and is more just kind of like, I don't know. There's a lot of people that have that same reaction. I have family of my own that voted, and their same thing was, well, I didn't think he was going to win. Yeah. And, I mean, you have a lot of those vote. Of course, that person's going to win, um, which I hope for t- this year with the midterms, we just have a better turnout so that that doesn't happen. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you haven't already, all your listeners, go out and uh, get out the vote for whatever local candidate or measure or ballot uh, that you have in front of you. The only person that can talk to your neighbors is you. So go out and do it. Yeah. And especially with the midterms, because they're mostly the local elections, that's where the vote really does count. It can come down to, I think there was in 2016, some local elections that came down to one or two votes. Oh, yeah. Every vote matters. Yeah. I mean, this is a classic story, but... Uh, the Bernie Sanders, when he won his mayoral ship um, in Vermont, or I forgot what the city is, uh, he won by 10 votes. And that's like a very classic story for his very yeah. first election ever that he won. I think he had lost like the first two 
um, and then one ten vote. So yeah, every vote totally matters. And yeah, the best way to generate votes is by going out and talking to your neighbors. So I would be really curious to know, given your intimate um, experience with the 2016 election, what is your opinion on the number of people who did not vote in that election? What's my opinion of them? <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, one of the things Crystal and I discuss is that Obviously, there was a very large percentage of American citizens that did not vote. Right. And now there are studies that say it was voter apathy, but then what happens to the people who have been disenfranchised? So do you have an inside perspective on how those two things, apathy versus disenfranchisement, might have affected the Trump election? Oh, man. Um, So I'm not going to purport to be a political pundit. um, (laughs) And I don't particularly love rehashing 2016. Um, But uh, (laughs) what I would say is that, yeah, I mean, like voter apathy had a had a had a role. Um, I think that uh, disenfranchisement also had a role. Um, I was just having a conversation with somebody about this before. And like, I think that, I mean, to try and pin it down on one thing is kind of hard and almost like insurmountable to actually accomplish. Um, and it's better to just say that like there were many factors that um, affected the election turnout and what happened. And, th- and the best way is focus on the things that we can change and the things that we can change is by turning out more younger voters um, and making sure we have as many people registered to vote as possible uh, who share our views. And like the only way, again, that we're going to do that is by going out and like having those conversations and doing the thing. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know whether it was voter apathy. Um, I, I did... During the 2016 election, I picked myself up from my blue bubble in California um, and moved to Ohio to work on the national election um, for a political action committee out there. And I was, you know, I was actually extremely surprised by like some of the views that people hold and some of the things that I encountered while in um, in Ohio. Um, I had known that like Ohio was a red state, right? But like, I didn't understand how red or like that, like that there, I just had seen things that I'd never seen before. Um, And that was, you know, uh, an interesting experience. And so I think that there is a large amount of the country that like, you know, just doesn't agree with each other and doesn't even see the same information or see the same things. And um, that, that may, that might be why our politics is more like, divisive and also why people don't participate and like why we have low turnout is because like people just don't see the point or they're so dug into their views that they don't want to see the other person's side of you i mean like yeah i don't know i i I will not purport to know or to to try and understand the, the the reasoning um i try and focus on like what are the solutions and like what are the things that i can change uh, between now and the next election. No, I completely agree with you as far as the voter apathy goes, because in 2012, it was actually less people that came out to vote than in 2016. 2016 was the 92 million, but it had to do with where in the country they weren't turning out, and especially the younger voters. They just didn't feel as motivated. But one of the, I guess, subsections of that that I was have been interested in, and I haven't been able to talk to anybody about it, and you seem to be kind of in the middle of that, are the Bernie voters who couldn't come out for Hillary, or that's what's said, couldn't come out for Hillary and support her, and then went out for Trump or didn't vote at all. Were you communicating with people that had that kind of view? Like, where, what do you do with a voter like that, that won't go out because of, I I don't know how to phrase this question politically correctly, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I know of some people. So just to be very clear, I'll, I'll I think just like say my my sort of trajectory. So I was a Bernie supporter. I then was a delegate to Senator Sanders at the Democratic National Convention, which which was like you know. Um, I don't know how to explain that. Anyway, so I was a delegate. Well, that's a whole other yeah. thing that yeah. they're now fixing too. We need to have a conversation. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we need to have you come back for another episode, <laughs> talk specifically about your delegation work. Yeah, yeah, yeah now that that was fun in and of itself. Um, so like I, I would just say like if I was a Bernie supporter or Bernie delegate, it was it's so far of a into the Bernie supporter thing that like most of those people did not go on to support Hillary. Some people did. I mean, actually, I should say like. Probably about 40% of the people who were delegates went on to support Hillary. A lot of them did not. A lot of them went and worked for Green Party people. A lot of them, you know, went and worked, um, are now working for Democrats even. So I, w- I would say it's probably a third split between, between it. But like, I was in contact with one, and sorry, and then after the deleg, after the Democratic National Convention, I then went and worked for all intents and purposes. I worked for Hillary. Like I was working to try and turn Ohio blue. Um, and the reason I did that was because I thought that uh, my voice would just be much more amplified if I if I and I voted for Hillary in uh, in California with a, a via mail in ballot. Um, so like I I did go like full circle and support support her, um, and I thought that that was the right choice at the time, and I still do, obviously. Um, but there are people <laughs> that uh, that did vote for Trump. Like I have I do have one friend in particular that I can think of that was like a, as hardcore of a Bernie supporter as I was, and then like kind of fizzled out and then became a Trump supporter. Um, so, I mean, I know of that. Yeah, but. I feel like with this, the Hillary Bernie, that was the first time that, in my memory, I could see just a stark divide of the party yeah. based on, you know, their candidate and then completely drop off from it. So I was just curious. Yeah. Can we ask what your friend's reasoning was to go from Democratic Bernie to Republican Trump? I mean, I think he was an interesting case because he was like a, um, he was an undiscovered kind of like alt-right kind of guy. And like, he just didn't know that he like didn't share the value. Like he thought that he shared some of the economic values uh, of Senator Sanders and then also shared some of the um, values about war, about like pulling, like not being at war, like some of those very, it was like very nationalism was his kind of um, perspective. And then uh, when, it, when he, when D- Bernie conceded to Hillary, he was just, I mean, at the same time, he's also like a misogynist. I mean, this is a piece of shit when it ultimately comes down to it. Um, and, you know, he was a misogynist and was just decided he was going to be a never Hillary person. And so he just voted for Trump because he decided that it would be easier to blow up the blow up the system than try and fix it, I think, was his was his reasoning. But I mean, like that was also, you know, that was two years ago. And that was a guy in um, just in college, some random guy in college. So I don't know. I don't think that that's really a, a big enough data set to like try and unpack like why somebody would go that way. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this leads into a natural segue of when you're out trying to organize and you're trying to change someone's opinion, I know you said that face-to-face interactions are one of the most effective ways to do it, but can you talk about some of the techniques when you're actually having that conversation with that person that you use to get them to change their opinion? Because the whole point of this podcast is to try to crowdsource wisdom and experience so what would you say to somebody who's trying to get 
whether it's a family member around the holiday table or someone organizing around their own issue, how do you talk to get to someone to get them to change their opinion? That is a great question. Um, and I do have a, actually a very specific answer for you. So the idea is, is um, there's actually a five-step process that we use um, and that I use. And this is actually um, something that is, it should, be in, should be in every organizer's tool book or tool belt. And uh, what it's called is the response cycle. Um, and this was actually really cool. This was developed by um, kind of roughly by some people who worked on the Bernie campaign. They then uh, went and took this to the United Kingdom and helped uh, Jeremy Corbyn get elected with it, um, with this response cycle. And then this, this, this group called Momentum um, and the Labor Party, right? There's, they then used it in, um, in Ireland, um, I believe for, was it, I'm gonna, I hope I don't mess this up and I apologize if I do in advance, but I think it was Prop 8. Um, which was a women's, um, I believe, right to get an abortion um, in Ireland this past year. Um, they also use this uh, response cycle. Um, and what it is, is it's a five-step process for how to take someone's like objection or problem that they have um, with what you're talking about, like with this issue, right? So it could be for Medicare for All, it could be for whatever issue, um, and how to walk through that person's objection uh, to get them to a place where they will be on your side about the issue. Um, and it's not obviously going to work every time, but it's a step-by-step process you can take. The reason I say it should be in every organizer's tool belt is because this is just a a way to have a listening conversation with someone and to really like hear their objections and then work through with those objections, like what the root of the actual problem is and see if you see if what the root of their actual problem is actually matches what their objection is. And if it doesn't, then, you know, you can move forward likely from that place. But if it does, then, you know, it might be much more superficial than you think it is. If someone tells you that like, I don't want immigrants, for instance, like in the country, um, you could ask them, well, why don't you want immigrants in the country? I think, okay, so for this response cycle, I'm just going to kind of dive into this. Um, step one is listen. Step two is acknowledge. Step three is share. Step four is make your case. And step five is ask. Um, so I'll go through those really quickly, kind of one by one. Um, and some of them might kind of seem really obvious to you um, and to, to listeners, but it, they're, they all have value in them. Um, the first one being listen, right? Like everyone knows that we should like listen to everyone else. But when we actually take steps into like to active listening, like making eye contact, nodding at someone, smiling at them, like actually like don't interrupt them if they, even if you disagree with what they're saying, right? You're listening to them to try and identify what their key concerns are. Um, when someone tells you what their key concerns are, you want to acknowledge and validate what you've heard. Um, Sometimes even if you disagree with it. Now, I would never obviously tell someone if you disagree, like if someone says, I'm a racist, like I would never say to like acknowledge or validate that feeling um, within reason, right? But when you acknowledge acknowledge and validate what someone said, um, you can really quick, quickly like gain their trust and like try and find what the root of their problem is. Something that we constantly run into and, and probably a better example um, within Medicare for All is people always say like, that's too expensive or how are we going to pay for it, right? Even Republicans, um, they will, that's like their number one thing. They're going to say, how are you going to pay for it? That's a nice an idea. Um, so what I would do first is, you know, again, is move through that process. So listen to them, acknowledge them, and you can totally validate a response like that, right? If someone says, how are you going to pay for it? That's a pretty 
valid question that people can ask, right? Like it's a very, it's not an unreasonable thing to ask. Um, as a sidebar, you know, I would say that we pay for $700 billion or whatever for the military. So it's pretty reasonable that we ask for people's healthcare, but that's not the point, right? I, that, that may be a value that I share, but it's not something that I'm going to tell that person. What I'm going to say is, yeah, I know that's reasonable. Like we should, we should probably be able, be able to answer that question. And in fact, that's a question that we get all the time, right? Um, and then the next part of the response cycle is to um, share with them. Um, this is your opportunity to share something like um, either a personal story, which tends to work a lot better than, let's say, a fact. Um, but it's time. It's also it's an opportunity where you could share a fact or share something more relatable. Um, a key thing about this the sharing process is that people are going to um, respond to something that is more relatable or more like human. If you start yelling facts at someone or telling someone like fact after fact after fact on an issue, they're really quickly going to put up a guard and shut down because they're going to think to themselves like, oh, I can't engage with this person because I don't have the same level of understanding that they do. Um, so it shuts people down a lot of time and we don't want to shut people down. We don't want to say like, you're wrong because the facts show that this, 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 and this. Like if you say it to someone, they're just going to quickly put up a guard and like dig themselves in a trench and back away. Um, and you, you, your whole objective here, right, is to get them on your side. So when you're sharing with them, you, like something that I could share is like, hey, you know, like we actually all, if, if the objection is that they, um, that how are you going to pay for this? I might say, hey, you know, we're actually already paying for this, like ourselves out of pocket. Um, and, you know, I myself just went through having a baby. And so I saw the astronomical costs that my premiums and co-pays and deductibles, I had to pay all of that out of pocket. Um, so we're really kind of already paying for the, our health services that we're, that we're using. And in fact, and then if you want to, you know, drop over a quick fact, I, then you can say, if I like Americans will actually save money over 10 year period by, um, switching to a Medicare for all type system, right? And by do by engaging with someone like that, they're much more likely to say, "Oh my God, like you just had a baby, and like you're living in this." So I'm much more likely to 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 believe and to like be on your side about this than if I'm like attacking them. Um, the next step is to make your case. Uh, this kind of you saw that I did this already, but like with the share into the make your case. Um, what you're working to do here is like make a pitch about the issue, right? So you can say like, oh, we're already paying for it. This is how we're already paying for it. And this is why we need a Medicare for all system. Under a Medicare for all system, we would be in a position where you, we would have no copays, no deductibles, and, um, you know, it would just come out of your taxes automatically and you would actually see the costs of your healthcare go down, you know, in a year's period, um, overall. And so that's you, that's you taking like a quick uh, snippet or quick time to just make the case about the issue. Um, and then the last part of this, which I already said was ask, right? So then after you've made a case for Medicare for all, then you want to like literally take the next action step, which is asking them to join you, asking them to become a supporter, right? If I just end the conversation there, then it's like, okay, we both had an opportunity to share our facts and share the way we feel. But if you never ask someone to join you, if you never ask someone to be a supporter for the things that you support, they won't do it or they, they won't like, they won't tend to do it. So you gotta, you gotta actually take that step and say, will you now, now knowing what you know in the conversation we just had, would that is, do you now support this issue? Do you now support Medicare for all? And people will tell you, they'll say yes or no, or they'll say, oh yeah, like, okay, I see what you mean because like I, we, we, um, my overall costs will go down. Like let's say they buy that argument, but then they might present you with another objection. 
they might say something completely different, right? And so then you can, the reason why this is called a response cycle is because at that time you can then um, go back and just repeat, right? It's a cycle. You just start over. If they give you a new objection, if the person after saying they understand how the tax system works now, they're like, okay, cool. I'm going to pay the same amount of money, but I don't think the politicians are ever going to let us have this, or I don't think that it's worth fighting for because, you know, I don't think that um, we're ever going to get it. Then you just work your way through that response cycle again. You say, oh, totally. I absolutely hear you and understand. Uh, and we actually, we hear that all the time. People feel like they're, that we're not going to get these things. Well, you know, I would argue that we're going to get them because, and you just work your way through the system again. Um, so I would, I'll, I'll be sure to share that material with you. And really, like, this is a thing that, that like, I, I would think that everyone ought to know and keep in the back of your minds every time you're having a, a political conversation with somebody. Every time that you talk to somebody about Donald Trump, you better be at the end of that conversation saying, what are we going to do that's measurable and actionable after this conversation? Did I make a phone call today to my legislator because I was so frustrated? Did I like sign a petition online? Did I gather 10 of my friends to go out next weekend and go knock doors about this issue? Like Every conversation that we have, they're, they're, at the end, there needs to be an ask and there needs to be something that... Like we get out of this, and that's actionable and measurable. Uh, that's a great tool. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. Um, a little bit more background on the tool. It was developed um, from some people from the Labor Party and Momentum. It was kind of I talked about it before. It was kind of jumped around. Um, different organizers kind of put their own twist on it. Um, but most recently, um, myself, um, the people from Knock Every Door and National Nurses United have been working with um, some people from the UK and the Labor Party on the specific response cycle. Um, and it's great. It's a really cool tool. Um, it's super easy, super accessible, super easy to remember. It's awesome. What would you say to someone that is using this response cycle as a tool, but let's say the topic is very personal to them. How do you sort of remove yourself from a conversation so that you're a little bit more distance and you're not having maybe like a knee jerk reaction because the person you're arguing with has a complete opposite opinion that might even be offensive to you. Do you have an example? Well, I mean, like, let's say you're talking to someone, just pulling an example out of the air, someone that doesn't believe that gay people should have marriage or adoption rights. Obviously, a gay person having that conversation is going to have a very, very personal response to that. So how do you sort of calm yourself down enough that you're not having an angry knee-jerk response to this person, but that you do have a productive conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you bring up two really good points uh, that I'd like to address. The first of which is like, these conversations are going to be difficult for people to have for many different reasons. When we're talking about people's healthcare, though, it's also very personal um, and very, like, I've had very personal experiences with it and people might not be willing to share and that's totally fine. Um, so I would say respect your own boundaries and know what your boundaries are. If you're not capable and willing to have a conversation with somebody about it that's not going to be productive, maybe walk away. And that's an, a totally a, an appropriate thing to do. Um, what I would also argue, though, is that um, at the same time, the reason why that's kind of okay is because, like, we have to take an opportunity cost at some point. Um, and this is another kind of, like, organizer tool to the trade or, like, just something to consider when having conversations with people. But there's an opportunity cost with every conversation. And at some point, you have to make the, 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 uh, the, the calculation of whether or not 
you're able to get some conversation, whether it's not going to be productive. If I'm having um, a conversation with Joe racist and he's going to continue to tell me that he's a racist, it's totally fine for me to be like, oh, awesome, Mr. Joe racist. Like, I'm not going to engage with you anymore and have a good day. Because for every one of those people, there are 10 other people out there that don't share that opinion, that are very moderate, kind of somewhere in the center, don't really care as much, and actually disagree with the racist. And our goal is to find those people. Our goal is to go out and find the Medicare for All supporters that believe that everyone should have uh, universal health care, like that we should all just have it. We, and not only should we just have it, but that we shouldn't have to pay outrageous copays and, uh, and premiums and deductibles. And that, you know, uh, that having a job shouldn't determine whether or not we have health care. There are people like that, but they're not out there talking about it. My goal as an organizer and as an activist is to find those people and engage them into the movement. And for every 30 minutes wasted talking to Mr. Joe Racist about whatever is time that could have been spent talking to supporters but we just have to go out there and find them it's an unfortunate name for joe racist yeah i mean i didn't self-fulfilling prophecy there yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he had a bad get-go um for people that go knock on doors would you highly suggest people to come through an organization and through a group to go knock on doors or is it a um okay practice for like i support this i'm gonna go start knocking on doors in my own neighborhood yeah, I would say go find an organization um, that also supports the thing, right? I mean, that's just going to be a little bit more structured. They're already going to have the tools and resources to help you uh, talk about the thing. Um, political pundits and, and uh, political operatives spend time, like, developing talking points and developing, like, like structured language on this kind of stuff, which helps people have these kinds of conversations. So I would say absolutely go through an organization um, but at the same time, I would also not let an organization stop you from going out and having those conversations. If an organization is saying that, like, the best thing that you can do is a honking wave, like, maybe you should decide for yourself that, like, I'm going to go out with a group of 10 people and we're going to go do door knocking instead because we think that that's better. Um, so I would, I would absolutely tell people, like, go through an organization, but, like, you know, know its limits, right? Um, I think that there are a lot of great organizations out there that are doing a lot of advocacy work just around resisting Trump. Um, and uh, I won't I won't name them because, I, I mean, like you all know them, but go out and, you know, volunteer for them. If you want to go out and volunteer for, uh, like, or sorry, now I'm just making pitches, but, um, you know, come out and volunteer for us, like if, if for Medicare for All. Like there, there's an organization. If you care about something, there's an organization out there um, so you can go volunteer with them. How does somebody join or help your organization? Where do they go? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I will be sure to share this with you and hopefully you'll share it like in your um, in your podcast in the in the notes about it. But there will be links to join um to join to be a host. So there's a couple different options for like working with us. Our primary focus with Knock Every Door um, and with this National Nurses Campaign for Medicare for All is working with hosts. Um, and the reason why is because we our whole goal is to train other people and give them the tools to go out and then train a small group of people to have many more conversations, right? I could go out and train one person to go out and knock doors or I could train one person to train 10 other people how to go out and knock doors. And being a host is really an easy thing to do. Um, all that you have to do to ever like host an event is really just be the central kind of meeting person uh, and meeting place, pass out materials, train people, and then go out and do the thing. 
Um, and with Knock Every Door and the National Nurses United, we provide you with all of the materials that you'll need and all of the training that you'll need to go out and train other people. Um, and the reason why this, the reason why we do that is because this method of organizing, distributed organizing, um, is so, um, expansive and allows us to reach so many more people. With a small team of organizers, we train, you know, hundreds of volunteer hosts. Um, to go out and host thousands of volunteer events all across the country. Um, and that kind of like scale of organizing isn't, hasn't really been done before, um, with, with such a few amount of people. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's why that model is the model that we use. And, you know, we've seen it be extraordinarily successful in the past year. Just in California, um, we were able to, um, have, oh man, I don't even know. Uh, we've had ho- literally hundreds of volunteers, um, hosts like close to five, 600 events, I think, um, in the past year in California. And then that's wow. like, yeah. And so that, and that type of organizing is just something that's, um, new. Um, and so we will give you that kind of training, um, and give you the kind of tools that you will need to be successful, uh, to run these type of events. So when people are starting, what is the, I guess, your best piece of advice to them? What did you learn that you wish you knew now? Oh, man. What did I wish that I knew that I know now? Yeah, I would have absolutely would have loved to have been more um, results-oriented um, when I first started. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but one of the things that I was doing when I was first being an activist that I didn't even know I was doing was I was doing things that had measurable results. So like registering voters. If you go out and register voters, at the end of the day, you can measure your results and say, I, in two hour times period, registered 10 voters. And like, that is good. And you can say you did something. Um, these honking ways that we talked about, like that, there's no measurable results. You might feel like you're doing something and it might be exciting, but you can't measure it. And what I would have loved to have been doing when I first got it started was only paying attention to the things that can be measurable. Now that's my own personal thing because I love measurable results. And like, I want to constantly be analyzing whether or not like the activity that I'm doing is helping in some manner towards the objective. And it's kind of hard to tell that in politics. And when you're working around this kind of stuff, uh, a protester, right? Someone who goes to a, um, a site to protest, they might not be able to get any like measurable result for that. And if that's what they want to do, that's totally fine. But it doesn't, it, for me, it didn't, wouldn't, didn't do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't help accomplish any kind of goal. Um, and so I would have, before I would have wished I would have stayed focused on those things, um, rather than going out and going to this protest or that protest or, you know, I would have rather focused on those things, but I just didn't know what they were previously. Um, and so, yeah, like, I, I think if I could go back and tell myself something, I would go back and say, Hey, always be sure that you can measure what you're doing. Um, and as long as you can measure it and you're moving somewhat product in a productive direction, like keep doing that. Great. That's good um, advice. Yeah. Through your work and through your communications with people, how have you come to understand what a citizen is? What is your definition of a citizen? And I would even narrow it down to being an American citizen. Yeah, um, I appreciate you giving me the lens to, to look through this because I when I saw those questions before, 
I've like kind of thought about it through a hundred lenses. And so it's really difficult to kind of come up with a definition of what is citizen. Um, I think though, if I'm defining citizen through my political lens and through like my work as an organizer, a citizen is just a person inside of a community. Um, and it's a person that has a stake inside of that community and everyone has a stake inside of the community that they live in. Um, and so I would say, yeah, when, when you ask the question, like, what is the citizen and what is an activist and what is community for me, what it did, it was, it really kind of, um, created, it like created contrasts that maybe didn't exist. Um, so can you be a citizen and also be an activist? I think so. If you're not an activist, does that mean you're not being an active citizen? Like, I don't, I, my answer to that is, is yeah, or sorry, no, if you're, if you're not an activist, you can still be an active citizen. Um, and that just means like understanding your role in society and like what you can do about it. Um, and maybe making like little steps towards those things, uh, that you can do about it. But one of the things that I would really like to kind of, um, stress when people talk about like what is citizen versus what is activist, um, the really, the kind of like big defining thing for me is like an activist is someone that actually has the luxury to fight for things that affect people and citizens every day. Citizens have a stake in their community and to say that like a citizen can't be an activist or if they're not doing something active that they're not being an activist is kind of like a, a false critique in my opinion and it kind of makes it seem like that citizens can't do anything or that they're not doing anything. I think it's really important for us to remember that like not all Americans have the luxury to be activists. We just don't. They just don't. People work jobs. They have kids. It is difficult to maintain their life, to maintain like a lifestyle, not to mention the pressures that exist around capitalism and forcing people to get jobs and paying for health insurance and things that they can't afford or, you know, forcing people into situations that is extremely difficult for them to live in. Um, and there's a lot of structural violence and a lot of structural racism that exists that prevents people who are just citizens from participating in activism work. Um, but that doesn't mean that, the, that there's any kind of like less of a value there. And I think it's really important for us to remember that like citizens are the active stakeholders and communities. And without citizens, there are no activists. I am an activist because I fight for citizens and I work to, to better everyone's lives, including my own. Um, and I do it because of the injustice that happens to citizens and that happens to people every day. Um, but yeah, I would really like to like to just kind of make that definition that like th there's no, it's not a contrast or there's nothing this or that. Like we are one and the same and we are all part of the same community ultimately. So oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, so another question, if you're, or do you feel like we've kind of covered the Medicare issue? Is there anything else you want to say about that before we maybe move into another section of the interview? Um, yeah, I, I think the last thing I'll just add with the Medicare for all stuff is like, um, for all the listeners, like there will be a link. Please check the link out. There's a page, and it'll show you all the different ways that you can get involved with the campaign. Um, if you want to volunteer and host your own events, like we will train you to do that. If you want to volunteer and attend your own events, we will volunteer. We will train you to do that. If you want to, if you don't want to do any of those, and even a lower bar ask, and you want to volunteer from home and just do data entry or text bank or phone bank like we can get you plugged into doing that kind of stuff um so check out the links and we will totally plug you into all of um all of the things and it doesn't matter where you are 
anywhere in the country, country. anywhere in the country, literally every corner of the country. Um, We, of course, like the campaign that we're running, we have target districts. So if you live in one of those target districts, we might have a slightly different ask for you. Um, But yeah, literally anywhere, anyone, anywhere can get involved. Um, Yeah. Well, one of the fun questions we love to ask activists is when you start getting overwhelmed, maybe you're having a bad day, things aren't going your way. What is it you do to unwind and kind of disconnect from work? What's what's the app that you play, Crystal? Oh, Panda Pop? Panda Pop. Crystal loves Panda Pop. <laughs> Man, I've actually, since the last time I talked about it, I have advanced pretty far. I think I'm at like a thousand. <laughs> Hold on, it's loading. This is important stuff right here because this is how I've remained sane, especially after Kavanaugh. There was a lot of Panda Pop during that <laughs> that hearing. Um, I am now at a thousand eight hundred and nine. See, I don't play, so I don't know what that means. Oh, it just means I'm getting really far into it. Like, how much can you win in one game? Um, I just save a lot of Panda Babies. <laughs> Good. Good. Everyone's got their own way to unwind. That's crystals. Yeah. I go on hikes. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I'm more um, in line with you, Debbie. I I tend to uh, <laughs> go out into nature. Um, I I like to think of myself. Well, I like to think of myself. I don't know. I'm kind of a junkie with for politics. So like I particularly just like will stay up until two in the morning, like reading things and writing things, and like you know being upset about them, and then like trying to figure out how to channel that energy. Um, so I spend a lot of my time just doing that anyway, um, and I think a lot of organizers will probably say they do that um, because it's just something that like keeps us going. I would say in a weird sort of like, um, what's that word when you like pain? What is it called? Masochist. Masochist. Yeah, masochist. <laughs> I've been called that before because of my involvement with politics because it's like people are like you're you're, you're doing this to yourself and it feels like it's hurting you, but you keep doing it. Um, so there's a level of that, but like, if I'm really trying to truly unwind, um, yeah, I, I, um, I pride myself on owning an all wheel drive vehicle and I just go out in the middle of nowhere where I can't get cell reception, um, and take my partner and we go camp and, uh, you know, hike and drink and hang out and read by the ocean or read by the the lake or whatever. And yeah, that's, that's my way of unwinding. That sounds pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in Oregon. That Oregon coast is absolutely just phenomenally gorgeous. Yeah. That was one of the reasons that made it easy to come back to the the Pacific Northwest was because of the, I can go from my spot to the beach, to the mountains, to the valley, um, anywhere I want to the desert in about a two hour period. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's, it's quite unique and beautiful out here and, um, yeah, I love it. Do you have a favorite spot? That you go to? Ooh. No. Or do you not want to give that away? <laughs> no, that's a good question. Uh, I, I don't, actually. One of the things that I do um, every time... So I go hiking like at least like once or twice a week. Um, and every time that we go, um, I type in like national park or state park or something. Um, and I go to one that I've never heard of. Um, and that's kind of like my thing is going to a place that I haven't been to because I want to see all of them. So Yeah, I love that. I'm a national park uh, what I'm, fanatic, I guess you could say. When I was driving around the country for three years, it was just me going from park to park to park. Yeah. It's just amazing. And so with this whole Trump um, insistence on 
taking them away, it's hurting me a little bit personally on the inside. Yeah, Ugh. no, absolutely. I feel that. When I, after the election, that's, I mean, I mentioned that I drove around the country and that's what I did. I drove from park to park to park, from forest mm-hmm. to forest to forest. I bought one of the parks passes and, um, mm-hmm. I love those things. Yeah. I camped. Where was my favorite one? Um, Arches. I camped at Arches. Um, Isn't that an amazing place? That whole part of southern Utah is just gorgeous, but Arches, it's just like a whole other world. Unbelievable. Yeah. I remember I woke up and I could like see the Arches on one side, and then if I looked the other direction, I could see like all of the mountain range, um, and it was like snowy and desert. Oh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it's a really cool place. So let's give um, the chance for the citizens that do want to take that extra step to become activists. Let's go through our levels of action for your group. Yeah. So our first level of action is the one-click wonder, and that's really just the least amount of energy that they would have to exert, whether it's on the computer, whether it's making a phone call. How can our listeners help you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I first want to say that all of the four things, like the four tiers that we're about to go through, all of them can still can all be found on the document. Um, the first level, this one-click wonder, as you've uh, uh, so nicely explained, I think that there's a couple different options for the one-click wonder. Um, if we're like talking like actual clicks, like I have data entry, you could come help us do data, data entry, you could come help us do text banking, you could from home if you want phone bank, that's a pretty low level bar, you don't have to leave your home, you can do it from your pajamas, right? We give you a script, like you can do all of this work from your home. Um, so I would say for the one click wonders, like there, you will see links on this document to join our text banking team, join our special volunteer from home team. Um, or if nothing else, look up your representative on Google and call them and tell them that you support Medicare for all. Just do it. Just do it once a week. I set a reminder on my phone to do it every single day at 95 on my phone every day. It says, call your representative. And I have my two numbers. I click call. I call. They say, Hey Riley. And I say, Hey, I'm just calling to let you know. And I hang up the phone. They so, know you. <laughs> yeah. So that's your one click wonder. Um, Volunteer from home, make a phone call to the office. Great. Our tub thumpers are the ones that want to hit the payment, maybe for just a day. They're willing to leave the house, maybe interact with people. What do you suggest for them? Yeah. So, um, and the next one, I think kind of go hand in hand, but what I would say is like, go out and host. If you were at the point where you were sitting around and saying, I want to talk to people and I want to, um, take, uh, my level of understanding and like engage other folks with this issue. And you, you've decided that's your, your route. That is amazing. Thank you for doing, being at that level. Go out and be a host, go out and take your charisma and go out and take your people person skills and train other people how to have these conversations. A lot of people are like very timid about doing this kind of thing. And even if they can just see somebody else who's willing to step up to take that first initiative, they will join you and they will come out and help. You just have to take that first step. So host a, host an event, host a door knocking event, host an event near like a mall or an area where there's a high foot traffic in a downtown area and just collect supporter signups and, and hand out, um, Hand out flyers to tell people to call their representative, right? Take that step to go out and get a small team of people out and uh, train them on how to do the thing and go out and uh, do the thing. And then for our super soldiers who are a bit more dedicated, what do you have for them? 
if you're a super soldier and you want to come out and do work, I have tasks for you. Um, what we would, <laughs> what we would really, really, really like is somebody, um, and, and this, this applies to where, if you live anywhere in the country, um, we need repeat hosts, right? People that are willing to be the, the rock in their community and be the foundation and be, um, the, the, the framework um, for, for events like this. And if you are, are one of those people that is dedicated to this and wants to find a, a, a place to be, like, I have a place for you. You can be um, the rock in your community for Medicare for All, and I will give you the tools and give you the training to, so that you can go out and host multiple events. You can start to, um, to, to really be the bedrock of, uh, of your community. And I can teach you how to do that. Great. And then for our last level, this is keep the change. These are for people that are wanting to give money. Is there a way that uh, our listeners are able to support your cause or are there other ways that they could support? Yeah. What I, what I would advocate for, um, I'm not actually sure if the, the, the national nurses United, um, takes donations. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would think that they might, um, I, what I would recommend though, is go out and donate to a campaign. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are going to post this before the election, but if you do, um, go out and give it, donate money to a candidate that supports Medicare for all work to get that candidate elected, right? If we get one more person in the house of representatives that supports Medicare for all, boom, that's one more Senator. That's one more vote. That's one step closer. Go out and give that person money. Um, and if this is after the election and you're hearing this, like people are get gearing up, um, and they, for 2020. So go find a candidate that supports Medicare for all and support them. Great. Thank you so much, Riley, for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, it was actually really exciting for me to talk to somebody that's actually an organizer and has been doing it for a long time, especially within national campaigns. So I really appreciate all the insights that you've given to us. Yeah. Yeah. And we really need to do an episode with you where we just talk about working for Bernie Saunders and the delegation, because that that's the work that's really, really uh, fascinating to me because it's kind of foreign to me. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to. All right. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. It was a pleasure. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I uh, always love the opportunity to talk about um, the work that I do. I will, as a caveat to all of this, I would just like to say that um, like, I am always perfecting the way in which I'm trying to explain myself and explain my ideas and these sort of things. So th the opportunity to do so um, is, is much appreciated, and uh, I hope to continue to get better at this. So thank you. Oh, you're already pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. conversation with Riley. I think I learned a lot and hopefully there were a lot of practical tips there for our listeners. Yeah, it was really fun to actually talk with an organizer, especially one that uh, worked with Bernie and Hillary on the national campaigns. I learned so much from him, especially that the, um, the tool that he talks about, the response cycle. Yes, I'd never heard of that before. No, and it seems like it's really working around the world even. Um, so just kind of refresh our listeners. The five steps within the response cycle is to listen to acknowledge, to share, make your case, and then ask. And I want to add a sixth one into that, and that's to take action. And one of the actions that I want to make sure that our listeners are definitely taking is to vote. November, yes. November yes. 6th. Wow, I had to think about that one. November 6th 
is the day. There are states that allow for early voting. I hope that everybody goes and does that. I hope that you checked your registrations. Um, and in fact, what you can do is you can make this a personal birthday gift to me. My birthday's on November 5th. Yay! So for my birthday, I want all of our listeners to go out and vote. And when you do, I would love it if you posted a picture of the sticker of I Voted and tag DC Podcasts on Instagram, on Twitter, or on Facebook. That is a great birthday present, I think. And then you can say happy birthday, Crystal, with it. <laughs> I will refrain from singing you happy birthday because I'm pretty sure it will be off key. Thank you. <laughs> that is my birthday present to you, is not singing. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, and in fun news... Yes? We've had another comment on our episodes four and five. Would you like to tell them who? Yeah, um, our number one listener, our top fan, <laughs> our our big cat... DC podcast, my dad. Oh, Yeah, he sent a really nice text today. It's always nice to have a little encouragement from him. And he went on to say how much he's enjoying listening to all of our guests and how much he's learning. And um, he particularly likes our banter, Debbie. Yes, I know. He uh, mentioned that. I, I think that's probably because we have a basis of friendship there and we know each other way too well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what other kind of news do we have? Yes, yeah, so I have some exciting news. Okay. As you remember, our episode four guest, Phil Telfian, I just made another donation to Equal Justice Under Law from the sale, the proceeds of our coloring book, which brings our grand total to $1,000 donated. That's amazing. Yes, that made me very happy. It's nice to know that we're supporting such a worthy nonprofit. Yeah, that's so cool. I actually, just a few weeks ago, had the opportunity to have lunch with Phil. I was in D.C. I had just gotten back from my Africa trip, and uh, Phil was so kind enough to take a moment during his busy schedule in the afternoon, and we were able to sit down and discuss what was going on and really get to know each other. He's such a cool guy. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to interview him, and I'm really excited to actually have been able to get to know him as a human. Yes, that's great. I, I really loved the two hours that I talked with Phil the first time I met him. He's so easy to talk to and obviously just very, very interesting. Yeah, so I'm glad you guys got to finally do that. Yeah, he just opened right up to him. <laughs> <laughs> I think Phil has that superpower. I think he's a really good listener. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for listening. And uh, again, please go vote. Vote. Tell your friends and family to vote. Make it your personal gift to me for my birthday. Post on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. Tag us. Say happy birthday, Crystal. Make it personal. <laughs> Let's do this. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.